All right, everybody, come gather around the porch swing. Old Rosenberg's about to ramble at you for a little while. Actually, I have some time today. My wife and daughter are in Minnesota, so no time restraints. Not to say I usually have time restraints, but today I can really babble and babble and babble at you. So with a wife and daughter out of town, sounds like total freedom, right? I should be clubbing every night because that's really what I do. I might seem domesticated, but really, I have the heart of somebody that goes to clubs and fist pumps to Pitbull on the dance floor, ordering very expensive drinks into the wee hours of the morning, sweating profusely out of my back and armpits with one goal, to grind the night away. Actually, clubbing has always sounded awful. I'm not sure if it's worse for guys or girls. But uh, can I wait in a very long line? And then eventually when I get in, can you make sure the music is so loud I can't talk to the people I came with? And then can I muscle up to the bar for a $12 Heineken before staring off into a land of debauchery and buffoonery? So this is my week, right? To do something? This is my week. No bedtime. No rules. No limitations. Actually, I'm so dull, I have been in bed by 9.30 reading every single night. Meditating, fitness, trying to eat right, maybe seeing a friend, but truly doing nothing out of the ordinary. Maybe moping a little bit. That's how you know domestication is the right thing for you. When even if you had an opportunity to break out of the routine, you really don't. It's kind of boring around here, I'll be honest. A little too quiet for me. And I actually was wondering if a big offer came my way this week. Like if somebody called me and said, bro, I got Coachella tickets. Would I say, well, with my wife and daughter out of town, maybe I can swing it? Of course not. Coachella? People are paying good money for this shit. Nothing sounds worse to me. And when I see other people post videos or pictures from these big musical festivals on social media, I experience the opposite of what jealousy is. I don't even know what the word is. But these people who are just in a land of dust, wearing bandanas and inhaling Vicks Vaporub, and everybody's in short, short jorts, jean shorts. And nobody seems to be that close to the stages where big time performers are putting on great concerts, I assume. But if I want to see a concert, I want an intimate venue. I'm a ticket snob. I want to be close. The only time I've been to a concert and I'm just so far away, it was Ben Harper after one of the horse races at Del Mar, and I felt like I was miles away from Ben. And I know Ben wanted me there, but I just had to go. So about 30 minutes into it, I said, goodbye. So if people say, have you ever seen Ben Harper in concert? Because that's a question I get a lot. The answer is kinda. I kinda saw him. He looked like a dot on stage. So believe it or not, I'm not a festival guy. What a shocker. I'm okay with crowds in certain settings. I am. But just a music festival when you're nowhere near the stage. What's the appeal? There we go. That's a nice negative start to here we go. Episode 14. Let me welcome you in officially. On today's podcast, I'm going to get to my best story ever. Why not? We're 14 deep. This is my best story ever coming up in a little bit. And it's also my most painful story. Physically painful story. So it's a doozy. It's a doozy. I also want to talk about some things I see in TV shows and movies that really never happens in real life. And I know it should be a long list, but it's really the little things that bother me. And then finally, I saw a documentary about Timothy Leary 
and Ramdas. So we're going to talk about psychedelics on the podcast today. Buckle up. But first and foremost, here's where we're going. My life today. High school teacher, husband, father, podcaster, dog walker, dog walker, dog walker. Nothing about my life is connected to sports radio anymore. After doing sports radio for about 12 years, that is a distant memory. So that also means I listen to it a lot less. Almost never. But here's why it's not never. I've discovered a show that's pretty good. And it's from the radio station I used to work at, 95.7 The Game. Their morning show is good. It's good. And I tune in for about 17 minutes every morning on my commute to work. It's one of the few times I'm not listening to podcasts. I like to wake up with something live. And the guys who host the show, one of them is Joe Fortenbaugh. He's the one chair. He's the point guard. And he's good. He's entertaining. He's informed. Another guy, Dan Dibley, a Marin County name. Funny dude. Longtime Bay Area radio vet. And then the third seat, I guess you would say, or one of the co-hosts is Lorenzo Neal, a former NFL fullback who had some great years with the Chargers down in San Diego when I was covering the Chargers and absolutely 100% belongs in the Hall of Fame. Put his body on the line every Sunday to open up holes for running backs. Plus, he's just a good dude. Very funny. And you can tell he's getting the hang of radio. Sounds like he's really easy to work with and people love him. He's just one of those personalities. He's got positive energy. So the show really works which is not really an easy thing to piece together a good morning show. Three personalities that actually work well together, but they've done it. So 95.7 the game. I'm not even sure what their ratings are, but I tune in probably four out of five days a week. And then this past week, the reason I'm bringing this up is because my mind was jogged to a different time in my life when I was hosting radio shows with sports writers. So this is the big difference, sports writers and radio guys. This week, Lorenzo Neal was off. And they had Ray Ratto come in. Ray Ratto is a really good sports writer. He is your classic journalist. His approach to covering sports and writing about sports and analyzing sports and discussing sports is almost the opposite of what you hear on sports radio. Even though he's done plenty of sports radio, his style just sounds like a sports writer. Old school, you know, give me an ashtray and a fedora type of sports writer. Curmudgeon, bitter, cynical skeptical. That's Ray Ratto. Funny as well, though. Very funny. So the first day I tuned in and I was like, ah, Ray Ratto's in for Lorenzo Neal, which is how all radio show fans feel whenever there's a sub. They go, ah, this'll suck. But it didn't. It actually became interesting immediately because this is the week of the NFL draft. And Joe Fortenbaugh, the number one on this show, he is really into the NFL draft, which is all about guessing and predicting and prognosticating and just reading other people's guesses. Ray Ratto doesn't have time for that bullshit. So he immediately puts Joe Fortenbaugh in his place. And it was kind of like one of those subtle yet heated debates, but you don't change the radio station because you're like, oh, these dudes are actually arguing. Like this is a genuine argument. And if I was the argument referee, I'd say, yeah, Ray Ratto wins that one. And then I listened the next day. Same thing happened. Another debate and Ray Ratto won. And then the next day, another debate and Ray Ratto won. Because Ray Ratto is bringing logic. It made me realize a lot of sports radio lacks logic. Doesn't even need it. Reason. But Joe Fortenbaugh's delivery is rapid fire. It's entertaining. And he's an informed dude. 
His delivery sounds good on a radio show. Whereas Ray Ratto's points, they come out very slowly, very well thought out. Here's a simulation. Joe Fortenbaugh on the radio sounds like this. And Ray Ratto sounds like this. Dot, 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 dot. So you almost have to slow your mind down listening to Ray. But when he gets to the end of his point, you go, oh, that was kind of brilliant. Not to say Joe's points were empty, but it is so different. The style of a radio guy covering sports and the style of a sports writer are so different. It's like two different planets. But when it comes together, it's always combustible. I don't know why. I don't even know if it sounds that good to listeners, but I truly lived it. So it jogged my memory back to a time when I came over to Clear Channel. I think it was 2007. I was at the Mighty 1090, and then I got an offer from Extra Sports 1360 to do the midday show. And at first, I thought it was just my show. But it turns out that there was a partnership between the newspaper, San Diego Union Tribune, and the radio station, that my show would be called The Sports Page, which would come on at 10 a.m. right after Dave and Jeff in the mornings. So I'd do a little crossover with Dave and Jeff, which was always fun. And then my show would begin, and they would just tell me who my guests were for the entire show. And they were always sports writers. Now, radio, sports radio, is not journalism. It's not even close. It's entertainment. That's what it is. That's what it always has been. If it's a call-in show, that's not really journalism. If it's covering the scintillating topics, the gossip of sports, the TMZ, that's not really journalism. I mean, sure, you have some radio reporters who maybe get you some sound from interviews, so there's a little bit of journalism there. But the main thing you hear from the hosts, that's just entertainment. It's supposed to be fun, funny for the fans. Sports writers are wired totally differently. They have the luxury of a delete button. So if they write a sentence that they're not feeling, they just delete it. And then what we read the next day is edited, polished, and ready to go for public consumption. You host a four-hour radio show which is what I did. There's no delete button. You just get used to saying things impulsively and having immediate takes, immediate opinions. There's no, hmm, let me think about it on sports radio. Huh, let me think about this one. Your thoughts are on live radio. So the good radio hosts, they can think on their toes. They're quick. The best radio hosts are smart people who are pretty quick and informed. Joe Fortenbaugh is that. I like the show. But Ray Ratto came in and Ray was ready to fight. And if you ever bring reason and logic into a fight, you're probably going to win. So my experience, I think I was, if it was 2007, I was about 25 years old. And most of the sports writers were either in their 40s, 50s, or 60s. So it was kind of like this dynamic of young me teamed up for about an hour to discuss local San Diego topics with a guy like Tim Sullivan who was a really good columnist, and Nick Canepa, great guy, or the Chargers beat writer back then, Kevin Acey. He was a pretty cool guy, had a big ego. His delivery was also very slow. Mark Ziegler, he covered the Olympics and track and field and Aztecs athletics, and they would bring in all of these writers every day. Sometimes they wanted me to talk about horse racing or USD athletics or whatever they were writing about. And most of the time, these were topics that I didn't think sounded great on the radio. I personally was interested in them, like the rock and roll marathon. They're like, we're going to have this guy call your show and talk about the rock and roll marathon or high school football. 
So it was catering to maybe newspaper readers, which we can now see there's less and less of those. And I remember really enjoying their personalities. These were all good guys, but almost dreading some of the interactions because the pace on the air just sounded slow to me because I was trained in the mode of sports radio sound where you're filling air with thoughts and you're trying to be enthusiastic. Sports writers didn't give a shit about that. They will take their time to provide a well-thought-out argument. And most of the time, it just didn't really work. Probably didn't work for the sports writers. Probably didn't work for me. Probably didn't work for management, but it was a cross-promotion. It was supposed to be a good idea. Hey, if the newspaper readers listen to the radio, that's good for the radio station. And if the Radio listeners listen to the show and then they want to read the newspaper, then that's good for the newspaper too. The idea is probably good, but it just is stupid. You shouldn't mix these two planets. Although there were some pretty good stories. I do remember in 2007, early on in this show, The Sports Page, I was sitting there with Tim Sullivan and Tim was kind of dry with his delivery. I wouldn't say he was cold, but he certainly wasn't warm. You know, even when you interacted with him off the air, he was kind of in his own world. But the story just dropped that Sean Taylor, the Pro Bowl safety for the Redskins, was killed. And then a story came out that it may have been gang-related. So I say, according to this report, some people are saying it might have been gang-related. And Tim is on the air with me, and he just jumps at me. What do you know? He starts screaming at me. And I'm like, well, in sports radio, you can bring up these reports. He didn't want to hear any of that bullshit. He wanted to stick to the facts. A lot of the time on sports radio, they're not exactly sticking to the facts. They're exploring every angle. It's kind of like the voice of the fan. They're providing some insight and also providing you other people's thoughts, bringing you sound and reports from all around the nation. Tim just wanted to discuss facts, which is probably pretty good in a newspaper. But on the radio, it's like, no, we're allowed to think outside the box a little bit. We're allowed to speculate a little bit. He didn't want to hear it. So it became one of the most intense radio fights I've ever had. It almost got to the point where I was like, are we going to fight? Are we going to go off the air at the next commercial break and go into the hallway and just start exchanging punches, Mr. Sullivan? However, as the dust settled, and I think my boss might have said something to me. Maybe his boss said something to him. The next time I saw him, it was almost like, let's hug it out. I had a lot of respect for him in a weird way. I was like, this guy came and he was ready to bring it. And I think he liked that I didn't back down. And he even brought me a gift. Maybe he felt a little bad, but he brought me a Ricky Henderson baseball card. He knew I loved Ricky. I was like, thanks, Tim. Big handshake. Love you, buddy. And now I think he's still writing, maybe in Kentucky somewhere. But I loved his writing. Really bright columnist the ut never should have gotten rid of this guy so i engaged never backed down from any of these sports writers and they didn't back down from me but there was always like this thin layer of friendship so when we got off the air i, I did like these guys genuinely and i heard it this week that's why i'm bringing this up ray ratto joining the radio guys on 95.7 the game they were still friendly with him but you could tell the dynamic was they were dealing with a true contrarian and Ray wasn't about to let them say anything that was illogical or misinformed. He was just on attack mode. Ray was like a pit bull this week, but his delivery didn't sound like a pit bull. Fortinbaugh sounds like the pit bull. Pop, 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 pop. A lot of jabs, a lot of jabs. If he's a boxer, it's a lot of jabs to the body. And then Ray Ratto, boom, he'll throw the haymaker, the knockout punch. 
Okay, so speaking of sports coverage, who's covering sports today? At every game, whether it's a football game, a baseball game, a basketball game, hockey game, you name the sport, usually filling the press box are the radio guys, the newspaper guys, internet guys, and then the TV guys. The TV people are the best looking. Probably the best looking, always dressed up. Women have makeup. The guys are suited up, suit and tie. Guys even have makeup. What am I talking about? Everybody has makeup, bright lights, and it seems like it's the easiest. I will say that. But the best form of sports being covered on TV today is on HBO. Real sports is still the best. It still shines brighter than every other TV show covering sports. And it's Bryant Gumble. They've been on the air for many years. And just a ton of incredible correspondents. Probably the best sports reporters. This is where Frank DeFord was on when he was alive. Bernard Goldberg is good. John Frankel is good. Andrea Kramer is good. Armin Katayan from San Diego State. He's not bad. Who else? Mary Carrillo. So all their correspondents, they do these fascinating stories about mainstream sports and some off the beaten path. And the most recent one I was watching also triggered a memory. It was about balls flying into the stands at Major League Baseball games. Foul balls flying into the stands and severely injuring people. If you have HBO, go and check this out on demand. It's gruesome. I should also mention that HBO Real Sports doesn't censor anything. They show you the raw, uncut, explicit footage of everything they're talking about. So if it's bullfighting or cockfighting, they're going to show you a lot of blood and gore. But with balls flying into the stands, they're also going to show you a lot of blood and gore. I didn't realize how prevalent this issue was. And they showed in Japan that they put screens up and down the first and third baselines to avoid these kind of injuries. But they say the ball is coming off the bat sometimes 90 miles per hour. So even if you are paying attention to the game, a ball comes off the bat 90 miles per hour. You're sitting there with your kids. Good luck. How are you going to dodge that? Good luck. You got to have quick reflexes. And they show kids getting hit with balls, women getting hit with balls, men getting hit with balls in their eye sockets, in their cheekbones, in their temple, in their skull, and just being shattered in the hospital. And I am here to announce on this podcast that I have also been a victim of it. And here it is, arguably my greatest story ever. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is not my greatest story but I feel like this is my most captivating story, and it has been my best story since age 10. What you are about to hear is entirely true. 1991, San Francisco Giants, Chicago Cubs, Candlestick Park. I'm setting the scene for you. Turn back the clock day. This is an official turn back the clock day. And I'll tell you what that means in a moment, because the bullshit they try to do today is not turn back the clock. When they have teams wearing old school jerseys today, it's annoying because they're not fully committing. The Giants and Cubs at Candlestick, 1991, they fully committed. And what I mean by that is, instead of an electronic scoreboard, because it was turned back the clock to the 1920s, they had these kids looking like newsies, manually putting up the score. The umpires were also in turn back the clock, old school vintage umpire uniforms the giants and cubs of course from head to toe decked out in old school uniforms they took down the ads and guess what even the prices around the ballpark at least for the first few innings they had turned back the clock so coca-cola was a nickel i'll never forget that 
My dad brought myself and my sister. And when we, he ordered three Cokes, he had three nickels. And I was like, this can't be right. 1991, the Giants did the greatest turn back the clock I've ever seen. It was so cool. The Oregon, they had it all going. It was one of the greatest days until, until probably early in the game. Maybe the third or fourth inning. I am all alone in my seat on the third baseline. I want to say maybe 14 rows up. Third baseline, probably around 14, 15 rows up. My dad and sister, nowhere to be seen. My sister ran off. My dad went and chased her. Who knows? Getting food, maybe. Bathroom break, perhaps. Grabbing a hat and a t-shirt from the souvenir stand, I guess so. But I didn't get up. I would hold in a pee at a Major League Baseball game. I was such a fan, I was not about to get up during the game, especially while the game's going on. So one of the great giants of the time, Will the Thrill Clark, Will the motherfucking thrill at the dish. And I have my mitt. Of course, I had my Little League Franklin, that was the brand, mitt. And I'm ready. I'm always ready because I was consumed with the thought that I am going to catch a foul ball in my lifetime. Even my group of friends at the time, I feel like that was the number one thing we wanted in life. To catch a foul ball. It, it really seemed like that was the mountaintop of life. And we went to a lot of baseball games. It was no big deal. So for all of you that have caught a foul ball or even a home run ball, you know what I'm about to tell you is true. And that is right off the bat, you know. Right off the bat, you know it's coming to you. The whole world is focused on this moment. So Will Clark, as you know where this story is going, fouls one off and it's a frozen rope and it's fast and it's coming right at me and I can't believe it, but I can believe it. That's why I brought my mitt. And as I put it up at the last moment, I could even see the seams on the ball. It rips right through the webbing, right through the mitt. That's how fast this ball is going. It rips right through my glove and into my mouth. The ball hits me in my lips and teeth completely busting open my lips, a lot of blood, one tooth is loosened, and there I am just crying. Ten years old. And the ball, I don't have a clue where it rolled off to. So through my glove, off my face, below my seat, and then a scrum ensues. So someone else gets the ball. The usher immediately runs over. Where is your dad? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. Hopefully I didn't use the F word as a 10-year-old, but I don't know. Maybe I did. They immediately take me to the stadium infirmary. And I'm still crying. I remember this. Maybe I was crying at this point because I didn't actually have the baseball. And they take me eventually. They tell my dad and sister where they took me. So we all meet up in the stadium infirmary and they put me on a stretcher. Not to go into the infirmary. I don't think it was that dramatic, but I think once I got there, they lied me down on what seemed to be a stretcher. You know, gauze, they did all the stuff that they do. I don't remember the medical procedure that I went through, but I remember I was in there for probably the next six innings. And when my dad got there, he was very distraught. I remember this. He was upset and he could tell that I was upset, but I was not upset about the injury. I was upset about the ball. So far, this is not the best story of my life. It's going somewhere, folks. Stay with me. And in that instant where he's trying to calm me down, some higher up in the Giants' front office is around, comes over to me and says, what's your address? So my dad writes down our home address right there on one of his business cards and gives it to this guy. This guy says to my dad, I'm going to give this to Al Rosen. 
who was the GM of the Giants at the time. And trust me, Al is going to take care of this situation. I don't know what that meant. But I knew that there was somebody in the Giants front office that now had my home address. So you think about being 10 years old, running to the mailbox every day to see if anything came from you or if anything came for you. For at least three months, it seemed like the answer was no, nothing. Nothing was coming. And I remember waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And then eventually, a package came from the San Francisco Giants. And as I opened that package, in my bedroom, in a glass case, was a baseball with five autographs on it. And it wasn't a new baseball either. It was dirty. It was so dirty. I was like, did they find the ball? Is this the ball that hit my mouth off the bat of Will Clark? Probably not. Actually, of course not. But then I look at the note. It says, Dear Josh, you know, something like, we wish you the best from the San Francisco Giants. And on the ball, the five autographs, Will Clark. And you know Will's autograph. If you know anything about autographs, it's an unmistakable W on the Will and an unmistakable C on the Clark. Kevin Mitchell, who was absolutely my favorite Giant back then. Matt Williams, the great third baseman. And then Willie McGee. I also loved Willie McGee and Roger Craig, their manager. Those five autographs on a baseball, to this day, it's at my mom's house. It's the best story ever. Maybe it would have been better if it was the actual baseball, like if it fell into my lap and I kept it, and then that's the baseball that these guys signed. But I don't remember ever visiting a dentist afterwards. Like I said, this is 1991, so my memories are a little fuzzy except for the moment, the actual moment of the ball coming off of Will Clark's bat. All throughout this moment, I knew it was coming for me. It's still sad, though, because I've never caught a foul ball since then on a fly. You have to catch it on a fly. Like if you have really good seats down the third baseline and the first baseline and you get a roller and you put your mitt down and you catch it, which I have done at a Padres game, that doesn't count. does not count at all. And if a player or a first base coach or a third base coach throws you the ball, doesn't count. has to be on a fly, catching a foul ball. That's a story I still want. I only have 80% of that story. I have that entire story except for catching it because that damn Franklin mitt. Now, this podcast is not brought to you by Franklin because apparently that's a shitty manufacturer. But watching this HBO Real Sports special, it's like an epidemic going on in baseball. Like they have to deal with this now. There are people who have had concussions. There are people who are like blind in one eye now. There are little kids who have been knocked unconscious by these baseballs. So it's weird to think about the danger of having good seats. We'll see. Maybe baseball is going to be proactive and put up the nets, the screens like they do in Japan. They don't seem to mind in Japan. Actually, there is one zone fans in Japan can sit in called the danger zone. Highway to the danger zone and they wear helmets and it's like a thrill ride just to be there. So they know what they're getting into. But for the most part, the fans are totally protected, which I guess is a good thing. However... Let me backpedal on all of this. I'm so happy there wasn't a screen. Otherwise, I don't have this story. And also, it gave me a deep appreciation for turn back the clock days. When they're done really well. When Coca-Cola is only a nickel. You'll never see that anymore. A professional franchise turned back the clock on prices. Never. And by the way, I thought about this too. Even though I love those autographs. Will Clark, Kevin Mitchell, Matt Williams, Willie McGee, and Roger Craig... And I loved autographs back then when I was like 10, 11, 12. I was wondering, where did this begin? Having famous people sign their names when you see them. It's kind of weird, isn't it? Like, I fully understand taking a picture with a celebrity. If I was out to a restaurant and I saw Will Ferrell, 
I was just thinking of any celebrity I really like. Maybe I go up to him, shake his hand. That's about it. Perhaps take a picture, but probably not. That sounds a little intrusive. But the idea of asking people, hey, can you write your name in cursive for me? Why? Why are we doing this? When did humans start? Hey, could you write your name with squiggles and big loops for me on a napkin that no one's really going to care about ever? Have you ever cared about looking at somebody else's autograph? Of course not. Some merchandise, some memorabilia is cool, I guess. Like a signed jersey in a frame. That looks good on a wall. It's like art. But most of my autographs that I got when I was like 11, 12 years old, like here's Jerome Kersey on a hot dog wrapper. Who gives a shit? Hey, I got Mario Ellie's autograph on my hat. Now I can never wear the hat again. Look who signed my chest. None other than Vinny the Microwave Johnson. Okay, that didn't happen. You guys see the news about Bill Cosby, huh? Guilty at the retrial? Highly doubt he'll go to prison. But still, it's kind of weird, knowing how much this country loved Bill Cosby at one point. Was there anybody more lovable on TV than Ghost Dad himself, Bill Cosby? And now you can't even look at him. Disgusting man. Truly like an awful person. It's very weird to think about. If you were to watch an episode of The Cosby Show, I wonder if we would still be able to have that ability to watch him as a sitcom dad with Felicia Rashad and enjoy any of it. Or if that show is just destroyed forever. Like ruined forever. That was one of the few shows I remember the whole family gets together in the living room on Thursday nights to watch. That doesn't exist anymore. People don't even know the night of the week their shows are on because you just watch it whenever you want. This is all before the binge-watching era where you watched a show once a week when it was on. You knew it was 8.30 NBC Thursdays. Now, kids, even adults, you don't need to know when a show is on. You just set the old DVR or eventually you go to On Demand and watch it whenever you want. But the Cosby show was so good. Maybe in my lifetime, the best show ever. In my lifetime, I think the three best shows have been The Cosby Show, Seinfeld, and The Office. It's now still kind of weird to watch Seinfeld too, though, right? With Michael Richards, Kramer, who was my favorite character, before his N-word rant on stage that was caught on tape because everything is filmed nowadays. His career has plummeted. You can't cast Michael Richards in something anymore. The N-word rant? Done. And I'm not comparing that to Bill Cosby. They're both negatives. They're both awful things. But really, it's kind of tough to watch Seinfeld in a weird way. Because Kramer was why I watched. Anybody who says they loved George, Elaine, or Jerry the most, you don't know what you're talking about. That show was called Cosmo Kramer in my head. Anything he did was funny. And now when I watch it, I like, ooh, cringe. I go, this dude. Oh, this dude. And it was not one of those forgivable rants where you could just say sorry. It really looked bad. Like if you read it, you go, oh, maybe that's not so bad. And then you see it and you go, oh, it's that bad. And then with Bill Cosby, it's probably going to be tough to ever watch the Cosby show again. Not to say I watch the Cosby show still, but I have a daughter now. It would be kind of fun to introduce her one day to the shows I loved when I was growing up, but I'll probably cross the old Cosby show off the list and replace it with The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which is mandatory viewing for all kids nowadays, I hope. Let's just hope nobody ever ruins The Office for me. Let's not find out that Angela or Kevin or Stanley or Dwight is a serial killer. Let's keep that show pure. And there's a bit of a renaissance with The Office now. I've seen my students. They watch it on Netflix. They love it. I get to have conversations about Jim and Pam with my students. It's a lot of fun. Actually, that's my number one. If we're going to do a little list right now, best shows of my lifetime, number three, Seinfeld, number two, Cosby Show, number one, The Office. 
Now that was mandatory Thursday night viewing, my friends. Can I have said the word friends any weirder? My friends. Uh, Last thing today, folks. Do you have any more attention span? If you don't, pause it. Don't delete it. Just pause it because I'm going to get into some psychedelics. That's right. Here on the podcast, I'm going to get into some psychedelics. No, I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm going to describe the documentary I saw about Timothy Leary and Ram Dass. It's called Dying to Know on Netflix. And I'm not going to act like it was a great documentary. It was very watchable if you care to learn a little bit more about the history of psychedelics or these two guys. Timothy Leary, people associate him with LSD and discovering a little more about how psychedelics affect the human brain. And Ram Dass, who is still alive, is just one of the warmest, brightest spiritual leaders, psychologists, gurus, a true guru who delivers knowledge and wisdom. I would pay to have an hour with Ram Dass to just sit there quietly as he talks. That would be an amazing experience. But they were friends. They were both psychology professors at Harvard. So insanely intelligent. And when they met, they wanted to discover more about the human condition, which is what psychology is all about, to understand it a little bit more. And in this documentary, in the first 30 minutes, they were very young men and they ordered like psilocybin, the main ingredient in magic mushrooms, extracted. They ordered it from a company, like a real professional pharmaceutical company, to just deliver the extracted ingredient in magic mushrooms and shrooms. And they were going to do like a study and just take some shrooms. Let's be honest, right? And then Timothy Leary discovers LSD and goes on a five-day trip where he doesn't even talk. And Timothy Leary had the famous quote, in that time that I was tripping on LSD, okay, this is not a direct quote, he said, I learned more about the human brain than in 16 years studying psychology. And that inspired a lot of young people to develop an interest in LSD. You know, this is the 60s into the 70s. The summer of love in Golden Gate Park. It's weird to trace the roots back to understanding these drugs to these brilliant men at Harvard. But that is my point. That's my only point. Here's my point. You ready for my point? It is, uh, aren't they just partying? And this whole documentary lays it out like they had a survey, they had a study, they had a poll question, they had an experiment, they had a hypothesis, they had a conclusion. They soon found out, yeah, aren't they just partying? These guys are at Harvard. And I know it's all in science. It's all in research, right? Wink, wink. These are experiments that are going to help us understand. Wink, wink. You guys are just partying. They were young men. They almost found a loophole in the system at Harvard. Hmm. How can we trip our brains out? How can we just go on a magical mystery journey all in the name of science and psychology research? So it's totally fascinating. But it also just goes to show that young people are going to find a way to have fun no matter where they are. No matter what they're doing, young people are going to find a way to do exactly what they want. To push the envelope, to explore the human mind. I almost think it's weird when I hear certain people say, actually, I've never smoked weed or I've never attempted to do any drug of any kind. Do you know anybody like this? Never had a sip of alcohol. Never had a cigarette, never smoked weed, never did shrooms, never did any drug. These people are clearly in the minority, right? I'm not saying people that use are the majority, but at least most people have tried something. Because pop culture kind of glorifies it, right? Bob Marley's music, 
You could almost smell the weed smoke when you listen to the great Bob Marley records. But for all of the intellects, think about all of the people around Harvard and these Ivy League schools reading these studies from Timothy Leary and Ramdas. They're probably very encouraged to try it. Yeah, let me see what this is all about. So LSD, I know we look at that drug and go, oh, that's so dangerous. But I think a lot of people are just almost like looking at it as a vacation. Yeah, let me go to another planet for like four or five hours and then come back to Earth. Let me see what it's all about. It's kind of fascinating. A lot of people have an interest in getting away from their current mindset and then returning back. It's a dangerous, slippery slope. So just like everything I watch, I guess I'll give it a ranking or I'll give it a grade. Let me give it a solid B. Is there anything between B and B plus? Hmm. B half plus? All right, I'm not good at grading, apparently. I'll give it a B plus. And then real quick, lastly, last night, before I went to sleep, little insomnia, needed a little stand-up comedy, so I put on Theo Vaughn. Do you know this name? Theo Vaughn, Netflix special. Really juvenile, really sophomoric, really immature, really, really funny. Like, laugh out loud. I have to admit, I was crying. I was laughing alone. That's how you know something is really funny. When you're alone and dying with laughter. True laugh attacks, cracking up. And now Nick Swartzen is in town for more laughter. All right, fill your lives with laughter. What if I just had to end like that, like a fortune cookie? All right, your lucky numbers are 13, 18, 32, and 41. Fill your hearts with laughter and have a wonderful day. Thanks for tuning in. Episode 14, now in the books. I'll talk to you soon.